0: research. I'm Anna.
1: I'm Georgia. And joining us today is Coy. Coy, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, oh, thanks for having me.
1: So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a PhD researcher in Manchester?
2: About myself? So I'm from Munich in Germany, Bavaria. That's where I was born and grew up and stuff. But then I moved to the UK in 2014, I believe. I went to the University of Kent, did my bachelor's there in linguistics. And then I stayed in linguistics, came to Manchester for my master's, and uh yeah, continued on to a PhD.
1: So, uh, from what I understand, Manchester's quite well regarded for linguistics. It has quite an active linguistics community. Is that sort of what drew you to Manchester as a place to do your MA and then your PhD?
2: Really? Have you heard that? That's nice to hear. I have. <laughs> yeah. It's good to know that our people are doing some promo. I guess, so what brought me from Manchester to the research that I'm doing and The kind of things that I've become more interested in, more focused on, is that it is a quite linguistically diverse place. I mean, you know, these polls are really useless. And usually, you know, people come up with different numbers on these uh, censuses. And there's no official, there's some problems with the official uh, ONS census when it comes to languages. Because the question that is posed is slightly misleading. And so we don't have a really accurate idea. But according to some publications, Manchester, or especially Cheatham Hill, is the most linguistically diverse place in the UK. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't think that's necessarily knowable, but it's certainly up there. I think uh, maybe it's uh, joined first with a lot of other places. And so that kind of interest in diversity is definitely very strong in, uh, in Manchester, uh, not just because it's diverse. There's many diverse places in the UK and in the world but because part of the local identity has become, especially in, in recent years, a kind of celebration and focus on diversity. And that then expresses itself through kind of different research networks and, and funding and things like that, and support from the council.
1: And perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your research project and uh, how that all fits in.
2: Sure, yeah. I remember clearly when I came up with it. came to Manchester, and as you probably know, uh, if you apply during a master's, Uh, You've barely arrived. Maybe you've been here before, but like uh, I had uh, recently arrived. I didn't know uh, many of the staff and uh, I was kind of pacing in the library because it was November and you have to submit funding applications and the PhD applications in like December, January. But I had no idea what I wanted to do and I was pacing in the library. I had like uh, a stack of books in front of me and uh, I was reading about things about linguistic diversity and language policy, language planning, things like that. Uh, Then I had this epiphany. And one of several ideas that I immediately wrote down was that linguistics is so broad. I'm not sure if you've had a linguist on before. I don't think so. Uh, But um, have you? No.
1: No, we've had someone from translation studies, I think. But yeah, not the same.
2: Yeah, in linguistics, there's so many subfields that it's a bit weird that we're all grouped into one department. Uh, So there's really sciencey people who look at um, waveforms and acoustics and things like that. Then there's people who look at sentence structures all day, word structures. And there's really philosophical type people who look at the meaning of words, the meaning of meaning and things like that. It ranges into social, like social science, science sciencey areas as well. Uh, So I didn't really know what I wanted to do uh, when uh, I realized that most of my academic life had followed what I found interesting, which is all of it. But then I thought I was reading Sophie's, Sophie's world at the time, which is this um, kind of lay person's introduction to philosophy.
1: I remember reading it as a youngish teenager which is a really good, really got me interested
2: in philosophy. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's uh, good for, for every child, really, even if they don't go go into philosophy afterwards. I was at the chapter where it was about uh, ethics, and it said how um, ethics is not just about doing the right thing, but how to live a good life. And so to bring these threads together is, may seem very incoherent right now. So I thought, not only should I do something that I find interesting, but also something that I find important, and where do those two intersect? And so I decided on a topic that is very personal to me. So that's something uh, that will, beyond academia, will have some kind of importance to me and my family. And also something that is in my area of interest in research. So all of this is to say, I then landed on doing research on Vietnamese language maintenance in the UK. Yeah, should I should I explain what that means? So
1: Yeah, I think that would be useful for our audience.
2: Maybe we can make it a bit more interactive. So Anna, when you hear Vietnamese language maintenance, what do you what do you think it means?
0: I was thinking about maybe second generation immigrants and kind of how they stay with the language. Is it something to
1: do with that?
2: Yes, absolutely. Uh, Have we talked about this before or is this just... I've
1: talked to you a little bit about it before. All of us have some degree of relationship to this subject, I think. So I am third generation immigrant to the UK. Anna is someone who grew up in another country and is here on a student visa. And then you have your own sort of identity. So I think we've all talked about language and immigrant identity a little bit before.
2: Absolutely, I think so. But uh, I I was just surprised that because the technical terms are not always very transparent. And I feel the word maintenance is particularly opaque. Because what does that mean? Are you maintaining the language itself? Is it in danger of getting broken?
0: My first experience talking to a person with such background was I met in an English camp a girl who was from Israel. And she grew up in Israel, but her parents came from Russia. And so she spoke quite good Russian because that was the language that she spoke at home. But she really struggled with writing because she was never taught it. She, she never had to write anything in Russian. She barely ever had to read anything in Russian. And that was kind of a really interesting experience because to me she was a native language speaker. She was talking to me like any other peer who grew up in Russia with me. However, it was a very different linguistic experience to her, and the way she spoke was different because of that.
2: You brought up quite a a nice example for what language maintenance means and what the field is. Uh, So language maintenance is the opposite of language shift. And that's uh, language shift is the process where... Uh, usually in migration, I'm going to limit the discussion to that because, but there's other cases as well where they, the terms are slightly different. For example, indigenous languages often that uh, can result in language death, but that's not really what we're talking about because uh, with migration, the language itself continues in its own community. But in the case of migration or displacement, which is a kind of migration, the linguistic community, in in quotation marks, I don't that you can hear that, is put into a new setting where their language, which may or may not have been the majority, the dominant language in the place they came from, becomes a numerical minority language and often becomes a socially minoritized language as well. So in the case of Israel, this was pursued, uh, you can see with Israel, you can see how politics can very actively influence this process. Uh, often happens organically otherwise. So in the United States, for example, if we look at uh, Russian Jewish emigration, it went both to Palestine and later Israel, but also to the United States. In the United States, the process usually takes three generations of shift. Uh, so the first generation speaks the, the native language, which in the case of the Jews from the Pale, the, the Pale of uh, Settlement in the Russian Empire, was actually Yiddish, not Russian. The first generation spoke that. Then the second generation speaks it poorly. And as Anna already pointed out uh, with the person that she met, often with very limited literacy, simply because literacy requires resources. And unless your community has some kind of ownership of press, you're not going to be exposed to literacy in that language, in your heritage language as a child. And then the third generation, because the second generation speaks it so poorly already, is often not raised in it at all. And what is left is, um, a few words here and there, maybe. That's perhaps some passive understanding, as uh, linguists call it. So you can understand it when people say it. That's passive competence, but you cannot uh, reply in it. But in Israel, uh, because of, you know, historical, I guess political reasons, this process was accelerated and directed. The state, the, the Jewish agency, even before the state, had a vested interest in uh, promoting Hebrew, the revitalized variety of Hebrew, modern Hebrew, as the sole language of of, uh, usage in all domains in Israel. So when the first alias, so the first immigration wave, came to Palestine and then Israel, they were actively encouraged to switch from Yiddish or German or whatever language they may have spoken before to Hebrew. And nowadays it's a more complicated facet, so the Russian immigration to Israel now is uh, after the dissolution of the USSR. So these Jews, for example, did not speak Yiddish. Uh, they have been linguistically assimilated. They were mostly Russian speakers, not exclusively, but mostly. And because of economic reasons and uh, social reasons, Russian Jews in Israel often live in so-called peripheries and a little bit isolated from everyone else. Uh, that is bad in in some ways. In other ways, if we speak about it objectively, it means that they often are able to maintain Russian, even though they're not encouraged to. And there's many shops that have Russian uh, writings on the storefront, for example. Whereas Amharic, the language of the Ethiopian Jews, often shifts after one generation, so not even three. Often the, the parents are so strongly encouraged to speak Hebrew to their children that they do so, which means that the second generation does not even pick up any Amharic. And that is a huge break in communication. So the interest that uh, researchers have in language shift and language maintenance is, one, ideological. I don't think that is necessary to, uh, that's nothing to be ashamed of. So we want to promote diversity, and we believe that diversity is good, and there's some research that shows that it is good. But independently from that, there's a very objective thing that happens when the language shift occurs, which is that uh, if you imagine that uh, your children, uh, so the parents and the children can only poorly communicate, Because the parents are forcing themselves to speak in something that they have recently acquired as adults. The children become very fluent speakers in only that language. So there's a little bit of a gap in communication. But then perhaps the children go to the so-called home country and to meet their grandparents. And they're entirely unable to communicate except through interpreters, which is heartbreaking. And is psychologically and socially very destabilizing for a family because it is good for the child to have some kind of bond with the grandparents, especially in the younger years.
1: So one of the things that you've talked to me about before is the reaction to this thing that's happening in the third generation where they don't have any of the heritage language, which is that quite often third-generation young people become very interested in acquiring their heritage language and sort of making up for something that they feel they didn't gain from their parents. Do you think that's also got something to do with these feelings of not being able to communicate with grandparents and having a sort of generational break?
2: I wonder, is it the outcome or is it, uh, has it common factors, right? Does it have common causes? So one of the reasons immigrants often do shift or the descendants, the immediate descendants of immigrants shift is that they are in a disadvantaged social or economic position, so they feel an immense pressure to fit in somehow, and that's you know then the messaging from the from the, uh, the surrounding majority society, the dominant society becomes important. In some places, that doesn't mean that they intentionally neglect their language, but in some cases it does. So in the UK, for example, it started, I believe, under Gordon Brown, who associated English not being spoken at in the home associated it indirectly with uh, terrorism, which is an outrageous and, and completely baseless accusation. But uh, if, you know, people aren't linguists, most people are not linguists. So if you as a parent who is trying to somehow build up a life for yourself and create opportunities for your children, here's on television and or on the radio that the PM is saying uh, you shouldn't be speaking your own language at home. And it is somehow necessary in order to be British. Um, or american or israeli uh, to speak the dominant language then you will think twice about continuing it and it also requires a great deal of energy which many immigrants it depends on why they immigrated and how they immigrated but many immigrants don't have that kind of energy or or support network in order to pr- um, maintain the language so for certain communities there are saturday schools where children are encouraged to acquire especially literacy in the heritage language but not all migrant communities have those uh, those kinds of resources uh, or that kind of energy, some parents have to work two or three jobs, and then when are they going to speak to the children and help them maintain the language? sometimes it's just unrealistic so i'm I'm saying that first because uh, sometimes that may sound like uh sometimes there may be resentment towards the generation that is responsible for the shift, but it wasn't always the direct choice and then the second generation has a difficult relationship, I think, with trying to define themselves, so the the parents were very pragmatic. They came to the country for a good reason, and uh, they needed to build up something there and that's what they're focused on trying to get through, trying to survive, trying to secure visas if that is applicable uh things like that. Then the second generation grows up and they can perceive things like racism, for example, which of course the the first generation also knows that racism is a thing, but they might not they might not prioritize that. they might think, "Hey, maybe everyone shouts and spits at me, but it, but I need to focus on working. On getting my children through school and, and so on. Uh, but then the children, uh, they grow up there and that's the only country they've known. And they see, wait a minute, you know, I'm being discriminated against here, uh, because of something I can't do anything about. I didn't immigrate. I was born here. And uh, so they kind of have a difficult relationship with the mainstream society and they're trying to define themselves in that. And they might also have a difficult relationship with their parents, not, not, you know, not in that way, but like, it might be difficult for them to associate the heritage with anything else than their relationship uh, to their parents, which may be very good, but it may not be, it may not form like a cultural part of their identity, but rather just that's the family, that's my parents in the, in the shop. But they're the third generation, they are free of a lot of those uh, pressures, and uh, what they want is not to, they're not trying to fit in, uh, they know who they are, what they're trying to find out is what makes them unique. They're trying to rediscover their roots. And they they talk to the grandparents, so these are the original immigrants now. And they find it in, they find these stories interesting in a kind of like abstract way because they're not their parents, so they don't deal with them on the same kind of level. And sometimes the social factors have changed around that as well. So in in Israel, there's a huge revival of Arabic. So the the so-called Mizrahi Jews, so the ones from Arab countries, they spoke Arabic or Jewish form of Arabic. They shifted away from that to Hebrew. But now we see a lot of young musicians. Uh, rediscovering Arabic music and uh, writing songs in Arabic and things like that. But that is a change in the circumstances of their families. But it also reflects a change in the attitudes of society. Uh, I don't think the, you know, the Zionist project about making Hebrew the, the one and only thing is as aggressive anymore these days. I mean, it's still there. It's still in the air, kind of. But they have no need to aggressively promote it anymore because there's no one really to compete with them anymore. I hope I answered some of your questions.
0: So how does this then apply
1: to the Vietnamese community in the UK? This is the exact question that I was about to ask.
2: Bringing us back around. So Vietnamese is my heritage language, that's why I chose it. And I grew up in Germany where there's quite a large so-called Vietnamese community. I've become, through working on this, a little bit critical about the term community. But let's leave that aside. I'm going to use community now to refer to uh, ethnic categories. Uh, So there's a large Vietnamese community in Germany. So when I when I wrote the proposal, I assumed it would be the same or even larger in the UK. I don't know what that was based on. I guess such was my lack of knowledge at the time. And that is something great about uh, choosing a PhD topic, because you can force yourself to learn more about it and force yourself to engage with something that may be a difficult topic. Uh, As it turns out, the Vietnamese community in the UK is not really a community, and it is uh, way smaller. I saw so many Vietnamese people in Germany. By Vietnamese, I now mean ethnic and or from Vietnam, because firstly, Germany took a lot of the boat people, for those who are not aware. There were three large immigration waves in the late 20th century, and the boat people was the largest wave, and that was in the 1980s. And my dad, for example, was part of that. My mom is a bit more complicated, but she's technically part of the same immigration wave. A lot more of those were accepted by various German municipalities and then eventually by state governments and then eventually by Germany itself, like the Federal Republic, the West Germany. And at the same time, there were large, for the kids who remember the Cold War, there was the socialist sister republics, not just the USSR ones, but all the socialist sisters, except if there were actual tensions, often exchanged workers. So a lot of Vietnamese people landed in Poland, Czechoslovakia and the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. So when the wall came down or when the Iron Curtain fell more appropriately, the East German Vietnamese people became German Vietnamese people in general. And then more came from Czechoslovakia, well, Czechia and Slovakia, and uh, from Poland. Uh, So that led to a quite large group. But that's quite unusual. Like, it doesn't happen that way everywhere. And as I found out, it didn't happen like that in the UK. The UK took far fewer uh, refugees in the first two waves. And Thatcher only uh, said, we will take some, but only from the Hong Kong camp. Hong Kong at the time was British, its kids up there. And that was with 10,000, and there was family reunifications and things like that. And the ones from the Hong Kong camp, half of them, approximately, ethnically Chinese. So that's actually why they were refugees, because Vietnam was at war with China in the 80s, briefly. But uh, that led to a lot of ethnic tensions. And the Chinese-Vietnamese, uh, the Sino-Vietnamese, were persecuted officially and unofficially. The property was taken away in part. Um, so that led to an immigration away from that particular ethnic group. And uh, they landed in the refugee camps together with the kin Vietnamese, the ethnic, the Vietnamese Vietnamese people. But obviously, on paper, they're just all Vietnamese uh, refugees. But that now results in a situation that uh, if someone was, say, to do a research project on the Vietnamese community in the UK, that person would find out that half of them are ethnically Chinese, which isn't a problem or anything. But it was a big surprise. And that also means that Vietnamese is not the heritage language. The heritage language is Cantonese. And that's also interesting. I mean, in like social science kind of things, you take a problem in your research and you turn that into an additional question. So now I've written about ethnic connections, intermarriages, how that influences language maintenance, Cantonese and Vietnamese and these families. And it's actually quite a nice thing. There's a Vietnamese restaurant in Manchester, led by a first-generation immigrant. And she is ethnically Chinese. She's Sino-Vietnamese because she grew up in Vietnam. She speaks Vietnamese as well. But in her family, the heritage language is Cantonese. The restaurant menus are in English, Vietnamese, and in, uh, in Chinese, in Chinese writing. Then across the road from that restaurant, there's a Chinese restaurant. And there, the menu is in English, in Chinese, and in Vietnamese. So they are aware of each other. And in fact, the first uh, refugees that came to Manchester, they found jobs in chinese run businesses, either because of ethnic connections or because of perceived cultural similarities. And so there is actually a lot of good feeling between those so-called communities. Uh, it's, not, it's not a real... I mean, it started with ethnic persecution, so it may seem like uh, they they might be hostile towards each other, but that's not the case necessarily with the sign of Vietnamese people in the UK.
1: It's really interesting. I suppose that there's a sense of... That there's a shared immigrant identity that goes beyond particular sort of ethnic associations or linguistic ones as well, I suppose. But just sort of having the status of being an immigrant in a country that's not been ethnically diverse for very long probably has a big influence on forming relationships between those communities.
2: Yeah, I mean, it can be an opportunity, right? So there have been Chinese, uh, British people for a much longer time uh, because of, you know, again, kids out there because of Hong Kong and Manchuria and, you know, British colonialism. and that meant- I love
1: that you keep directing this to the kids. <laughs> like, we have a lot of kid listeners.
2: I don't know. <laughs> also,
1: before you mentioned kids who remember the Cold War, to be able to remember the Cold War, you need to be at least 33.
2: As I said, kids, right? I don't know. <laughs> no, I am I feel like I'm at risk uh, developing this habit where I throw out things and assume that everyone knows what it mm. means, which it can be condescending a little bit if it comes across wrong. Like, as you know, or like, obviously, comma, yeah. something. So I'm trying to avoid that.
1: Yeah, it's a good habit to get out of and, you know, to be considerate of... Everyone learns something for the first time at some point. Yeah. Just because it now seems obvious to you, there was a time when you didn't know it. Yeah. I just think it's really uh, the idea of Cold War kids. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, I'm still a kid.
2: <laughs> you know, if one listener uh, feels seen by that, then I will have reached my goal. Kids out there, Cold War kids. Anyway, so for the kids out there, again, because of British colonialism, there there have been Chinese people in. I'm using this sloppily, but like Chinese people in the UK for a longer time, for several decades. So they have been able to establish businesses, and uh, they were kind of a known, a known unknown among the the white British population. I mean, if if you're going to be seen as Chinese anyway, you might as well. I mean, you, you don't need to, but they thought it might be a good economic opportunity to integrate with them. That's also an interesting thing I've been doing with the term integration. Because if uh, I talk to someone, an informant, let's say an anthropology or a participant in linguistics, a person, I talk to a person, and that person had a story where before he came to the UK, he was in one of those Hong Kong refugee camps, and his uncle told him to learn Cantonese before coming to the UK, because that would help him through life. And uh, then when he arrived in the UK, he did speak Cantonese. So he was able to work in Chinese restaurants and Chinese businesses. So that's an interesting thing about integration, right? There's a lot of common sense wisdom being sprouted especially by uh, politicians since the early 2000s that you know when you land in a country you have to learn the language and you know maybe not speak any other languages except for like prestige international ones and things but for that person integration into British society meant to learn a minority language Cantonese because realistically speaking he wasn't going to get a job with a large British company so I thought that was an interesting little anecdote
1: so interesting I just keep getting like caught up in what you're saying being like god this is fascinating
0: You mentioned intermarriages, and I thought, that's really, really interesting. How does this affect all of that? Partially, right. Currently, my grandmother is having constant anxiety about the fact that my children won't be able to speak Russian because Nathan doesn't speak Russian. Nathan is my partner. that you know mm-hmm. I keep comforting her in that I'm not yet having children. But, like, how does this how does this affect that?
2: Yeah, and is it even possible? That's really interesting. I'm going to, you know, uh, since you volunteered yourself, I'm going to use you as an example for, for this kind of thing. That is a subfield that I found out about. There are so many subfields. I like that, actually. It's like find something that you think is niche, and it's a whole world, and people have written about it since the 50s, and it's great. And that's called family language policy. As the term suggests, it's about uh, what parents decide to speak in the home. And there's a lot of self-help books out there, they tell you to do this or that. But there's also studies that follow it up. Some of them record what parents actually do, and then compare it with what they think they do, which is never the same in linguistics. You know, you never never speak the way that you think you do. And for a while, what was really popular is the OPOL thing. So one parent, one language. The idea was that in order to create a trilingual child, some kind of super child experiment, each parent would speak only their language. And if hearing the other language, uh, the parent should pretend not to understand and uh, and redirect the child to use the appropriate language. And that would, so go the self-help books, a result in the amazing, super intelligent a child who's fluent in three languages.
0: That sounds really stressful for the child.
2: Yes, it is. A lot of these things, I think, there's a tendency for high-achieving parents to view their children as projects. I think that's because they've seen their whole lives as various projects in which they've achieved a great deal of success. So that's maybe why uh children from those families are a little bit, little bit under high pressure. So firstly, do what's right for the child. Cold War kids out there, do what's right for the child. And in the end, it's all that they have of the child. There's some statistics I'm going to allude to now, but in the end, the child's going to do what the child is going to do. And don't, you know, don't have resentment against each other. Because the whole point of it is communication. It depends a little bit on the environment that you would grow up in. So if you and Nathan stayed, uh, this might get weirdly personal, if you and Nathan stay in the UK, where the child will be exposed to English almost exclusively from kindergarten until primary school and, and so on, that is a huge amount of input. So I speak Vietnamese but I can't read and write it. And my vocabulary is a lot smaller in Vietnamese than in German. But why is that? I mean, my parents speak to me only in Vietnamese. But that's not the only input yet. It's not all on the parents, and it's not all on the child either. It's, uh, it's also on the environment of the child.
1: Presumably, there are also certain topics that people just don't speak to their parents about as well, right? So you don't have access to particular vocabulary or particular topics in your heritage language because you're not talking to your parents about, off the top of my head, Sex, politics, (laughs) like, pop culture, stuff that you don't necessarily want to have in common with your parents.
2: Yeah, yeah. Sex and politics, often related. Yeah, or, like, just simple things that you, growing up, you don't know the words in any language until you learn them at school. So, I mean, there's a reason teachers tell you in geography, firstly, what is geography? And then this is called that, like sediments and erosion and whatever. Obviously, none of those terms are available in the heritage language unless your parents...
1: What geography teachers.
2: Yes, exactly. That is that is a possibility. But then those, those parents might not be able to talk about uh, music, music theory, and whatever the child might uh, uh, be interested in. And all of this can't be really forced. And uh, again, with literacy, it's a problem so... Maybe the parents are geography teachers, but they might not be able to access geography textbooks in Tigrinya, like that's a language in uh, Eritrea. Alright. right. So I was going to say Arabic, that's quite a big language. So uh, nowadays, especially in Manchester, you can get geography textbooks in Arabic. Not to say that it's not still a minoritized language. But i chose a smaller language with fewer textbooks so uh, anna if you're nathan's future potential dream child that is very excited to meet their grandmother is growing up and uh, speaking to uh, you in in russian uh, certain topics that don't come up and you you don't know which those are so and uh, you're not supposed to force yourself to talk to to them in, in about particular topics just because of out of some commitment to some project Right. So you want to develop a loving relationship. And those will be the terms that they will uh, learn primarily in, in Russian, presumably. So, you know, love and, and proud and, and hugs, you know, those words, which is great. I think that's already very important because when you speak a language, you, what you really need is an emotional connection with it. But still, you know, that problems with literacy might come up and so on. And uh, if the dominant language outside of the house is the same as one of the language of the partners, Well, children are are very smart. So at first they will grow up and learn both. But when they hit puberty, the, you know, parents who boast about their trilingual or quadrilingual child might find that the child prioritizes the language they can talk to their friends about, you know, heartbreak, being really sad, and uh, how their parents don't understand them other things. So children make decisions like that subconsciously or unconsciously. They they don't say like, you know, I can't order sweets in Russian. They might say that if they're particularly self-aware. But most of the time it will be, they will want to uh, during the teenage years, want to spend more time with their peers and a little bit less time with their parents. And if it's only one parent who they would speak the heritage language with, that further reduces the input. That doesn't make it impossible, but that makes it very hard. So again, just uh, Cold War kids out there, love is more important than all of those things. But uh, what might help in that case is If this grandmother was also in the UK, that the the kid hangs out with the grandmother a lot, because uh, then the child realizes they have a lot of early what's called sociolinguistic competence, which we often underestimate children with those things. But they are able to match, for example, uh, different codes of expression. So sometimes that's different languages like Russian and English. But even colloquial versus formal language and things like that, they are able to match that to people. Even little children know that you shouldn't speak to a police officer the same way that you speak to a friend. And even a very small child will be able to know, hey, this is not Anna, this is Anna's grandmother, so I will speak only Russian now because I can't ask for chocolate in English and get chocolate, right? So in the end, the thing that you want with this linguistic connection is a familial connection. Not to get all mushy here, but that's true right? What you want is for the child to be able to connect with family members or their family's history. So, prioritize what you actually want first, I would say, and the language will come automatically with that. Because if the child has a lot of fond associations with Russian culture, Russian children's television, Russian family members, then they will maintain the language over time anyway, because they will want to be in a WhatsApp group with their Russian family members. They will want to share Russian YouTube clips with, I don't know, I'm trying to be modern and cool here, but, uh, you know, Snapchats and instagram whatever
1: we usually ask people if they have sort of a funny anecdote or something from their research to share
2: I'm prepared, yes. I got really nervous because oh, no. I don't want to come across like I'm, I'm a really serious, you know, just to be clear to your Cold War kids out there, I'm not very serious and sad and talk about uh, how hard life is all the time, right? But I really struggle to come up with funny anecdotes, not because they didn't happen. I'm sure they did, but I don't remember them that well. But I came up with two, right? I'm going to throw both of them in there. Then you don't have to pretend that either of them is funny. We can just uh, all just take it in. <laughs> so one of them was when you do ethnography so I do ethnographic fieldwork that sounds really cool and you may or may not have romantic images of the person with the notebook who's going to some remote location and whatever if it's urban ethnography it is a little bit more ordinary than that and you have to kind of connect to people in a very anonymous setting so I really struggle to find people who are Vietnamese Who can ask questions about speaking Vietnamese and being Vietnamese in Manchester. But I saw that there was a street where there were several shops and restaurants, a cafe and barbershops. And some of them were clearly Vietnamese. But I didn't know which ones. Uh, Someone had pointed out there's this barbershop next door that is owned by a Vietnamese father. So I went into a barbershop. And I sat down, and I was a bit intimidated. I didn't really need a haircut, but I needed a, a way in And I'm shoved into a chair, and this person comes to me and speaks to me. And I think, uh, well, that's a strange Vietnamese dialect. And I reply in Vietnamese. And then we do this back and forth for a few seconds. And then I realize you're Chinese, aren't you? And he's like, Yeah, you're Vietnamese, right? I was like, Yeah, sorry, I thought you were. But then I couldn't say I don't need a haircut. I just wanted to find someone of my same ethnicity. That's rude. So I got the haircut. Then I walked down the street again, and I saw the barber shop that I actually wanted, which had a Vietnamese name and like a Vietnamese uh, thing on the storefront. It's like, well, now my hair's too short; I can't go in there. I have to find a different way. <laughs> you
1: have to go back in a month when your hair's grown back.
2: <laughs> exactly. Uh, those are the romantic, you know, and harrowing techniques that we are forced to employ in ethnography these days. Another one was uh, went into uh, all the Vietnamese restaurants and asked people questions if they were willing and at uh, one point came into this Vietnamese looking restaurant it had like quote-unquote, authentic uh, Vietnamese decor, like alluding to Vietnam, not like in any other way. And uh, I asked, the waiter came like three or four times, and each time I asked her more questions. I looked at my notebook with the questions, and then I put it away again, and I asked questions. And I figured out over the course of the conversation that she's Filipino, ethnically, I think. I think she's British, she had an English accent. But uh, she's ethnically Filipino. Her colleagues are all Filipino. And she also mentioned that most people who come there are also Filipino. And it's like, well, that's interesting. but it's not really... I don't know how much I can write about that. And I left and I never came back. But then that same restaurant opens a stall near to campus one day. And I, they sell Vietnamese food and I have, was having a bad day, you know, and I thought maybe some comfort food. And I started queuing. And then the person who is serving the customers looks up, locks eyes with me and says, aren't you the guy who came in a couple of months ago and asked me all these questions? And I was shocked. Firstly, I don't expect social interactions ever, unless they're scheduled in advance. So it's was kind of stumbling. And secondly, doesn't she have thousands and thousands of customers? How did she recognize me?
1: Yeah, an incredible memory for faces. But then I suppose you must have stood out as someone who was asking a lot of questions. But still, like, that's amazing.
0: And you had really short hair after all of those
1: haircuts. <laughs> I was the
2: only bald, <laughs> <Yeah>, yes. <laughs> <he's> really... <laughs>
1: this completely bald guy who just kept asking me questions.
2: Yeah, and in hindsight, it was very memorable. Yeah, and that made me made me wonder whether I should change my research subject to Filipinos in the UK, just so I could uh, extend this uh, connection that I had built up.
1: Yeah, carrying on chatting up this girl. <laughs> So has your research given you an opinion on where the best Vietnamese restaurant in Manchester is?
2: Ooh, I don't know if I can... uh...
1: You don't have to say who it is. Do you have a favourite?
2: Actually, I'm going to dodge out of this by saying a home-cooked meal is always the best because of the love in it. So the best Vietnamese food I've had was when some people very kindly invited me over. Once I got food in a Catholic diocese in Birmingham, run by Vietnamese people, and they gave me free food uh, several times. That was the best food.
1: That is pretty nice. Good way of dodging the conversation. I'm going to ask you off the air where the actual best Vietnamese food is in Manchester. Because I mean... I know where a couple of places are, but I wouldn't say I knew a lot. Anyway, Coy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear all about your research and always great to catch up with you anyway.
2: Thank you both for having me. It was a real honour.
1: Anna, thank you for hosting. Georgia, thank you. And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens in the podcast, stays in the podcast. Not safe for publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at podcast, or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.